Do you want to hear about the dream I had last night? Yes. Your dreams are always so fascinating. You were in it. It was a nightmare. Oh, was I the nightmare? You were the nightmare. Was I killing you? No. (laughs) But we got into a really big argument, and we stopped being friends, and you stole my car, and all that was left of it was like the the door on the So I stole your car, but not all of it. Yeah. (laughs) And that completely devastated me. Wait, what were we fighting about? The origin of life? The podcast. Oh. We couldn't agree on something to say for the podcast. (laughs) And it was absolutely terrible. Hi, Stuart. Hey. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, don't worry about that. Um, actually, just, yeah, we can t- take it off and play with it. That's hilarious. No. This is Delta Flyer from Star Trek Voyager. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. It's my favorite shuttlecraft in all of Star Trek. It looks like a space shuttle. James Keen gave it to me. It's part of the Eagle Moss collection. They do, like, super legit replicas of all the starships. James has a subscription every month they send him starships and uh he gave this one to me because he knows i like this design greetings and welcome back to strange new worlds a science and star trek podcast my name is mike wall your host And today, we are continuing our discussion about the nature and origin of life by bringing in Dr. Stuart Bartlett. Stuart is a postdoctoral fellow at the Earth Life Science Institute in Tokyo, Japan, and a visiting scholar at Caltech. Because he approaches the origin of life from the perspective of a theoretical physicist, I find my conversations with Stuart refreshing, enlightening, and sometimes quite challenging. The scientific portion of today's conversation may be a bit jargony, for which I apologize in advance. So let me give you a one-minute preview of what Stuart will be trying to say. First, he'll be talking about the four fundamental pillars of life. Dissipation, autocatalysis, homeostasis, and learning. Of these, you may have only heard of learning, So what do the others mean? Dissipation is just fancy-speak for how life gets energy. To dissipate means to make something dissolve or disappear, and life gets its energy from dissipating disequilibria, unbalances in chemistry or concentration. We do this in our metabolism when we eat and breathe. For instance, Worf dissipates the redox disequilibrium between the gach that he eats, and the oxygen that he breathes, and this releases energy to power the mighty Klingon. Autocatalysis is fancy-speak for enabling one's own existence, or the existence of those like you. This is brought about by positive feedbacks, where the products of a certain process promote the creation of more of themselves, and this leads to exponential growth. Homeostasis is just the opposite. Through negative feedbacks, life maintains balance and structure in the face of forces that try to tear it apart into a more disordered, more entropic state. Finally, we ask Stuart about nanoengines, molecular machines that perform the tasks of life within our cells. At the nanoscale, chaos dominates the motion of molecules. 
But through its nano-engines, life has developed a clever way of extracting useful work from randomness, of bringing order to chaos. Sound a little bit like the Borg? Well, it just so happens that they're one of Stuart's favorite life forms from Star Trek. Now, with that primer, let's jump straight into our conversation. Resistance is futile. So welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Today we're joined by Dr. Stuart Bartlett. And Stuart, I know that you are a Star Trek fan. That's and true. I was wondering if you could tell us about your Star Trek origin story. My Star Trek origin story is the famous scene with Q and Captain Picard. And I can remember when I first watched that, I'm not sure how old I was, but pretty young, and I certainly wasn't not a scientist at that point. And Q says, goes over to a bubbling pool of miscellaneous liquid and says, <laughs> this is you. We can reduce you down to a bubbling pile of goo. And I remember thinking at the time, again, without the knowledge that I have now as a kid, I was quite confused because I thought, well, how can all of Picard's molecules be concentrated in that little pool? Wouldn't they, in the sort of billions of years between then and the time, the future time that Star Trek was set in, wouldn't those molecules disperse? And is it the molecules that identify us or something else? So that, that was sort of confusing, but I guess inspiring at the same time. And, you know, this was at least 20 years probably before I started thinking about the origin of life. So maybe when the opportunity arose to study the origin of life, there was some voice trying to understand Q's statement pushing me in that direction. That's really cool that your Star Trek origin story and the spark that made you decide to go into origin of life studies is one and the same. Yeah. Beyond that spark that you just talked about, has Star Trek in any way influenced your decision to become a scientist or any of your research once you got here? <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking about that recently, and my initial thought was that, well, I watched Star Trek intensely when I was a kid, and then didn't watch it for a long time. But then, of course, I realized that actually, since I was young at the time, and since it does encourage you to think big and wonder what's out there, it probably had a huge influence on my intellectual direction. I was always interested in space and, you know, what, what was at the edge of the universe and these kind of questions. And I guess, I guess my mum, you know, she, she was happy to sit me and my brother in front of Star Trek because it was probably, you know, a healthy TV program to watch. So I guess it, it probably um, encouraged an inquisitive questioning mind to flourish and it gets your mind thinking about what the future will be like and and you know you you can sort of be critical about what they got wrong in terms of their predictions of what the future will be like but actually it influences not just individuals but the whole of our culture I think because if we come up with a bunch of dystopias that we hate then we're more likely to try and push society in a different direction so um yeah, Star Trek, I think definitely, I never thought about it at the time, but I think it definitely inspired me towards basic research. Nice. Yeah, that's something that I love about Star Trek, too, and something that I really appreciate about it today as a scientist, 
So Elise and I actually watched that episode with Q yeah, and very Picard. Very recently. Yeah. Oh, and, um, such a good one. It's, it's amazing how the main dilemma in that episode is overcome by basically a bunch of people, albeit in three different timelines, connected by Picard, who is traveling through these different time periods, basically just a bunch of people being really, really smart mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. putting their brains together and yeah. figuring out the answers to this paradox. And I feel like yeah. that is so rare in television and movies these days. It was days. like yes. an action-driven plot with no guns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's kind of missing a lot in some ways these days. Yeah, I was going to say, even the new Star Trek series is not really about imagining that like ideal future so much yeah. as it's exploring the kinds of flawed people that exist today just mm. in the future. Mm. At the end, it sort of touches on that Star mm. Trek idealism, but that's I feel like it's more like eye candy or like visual candy than it is, you know, yeah. Picard sitting there and talking about the nature of existence yeah. and kids somehow being roped into watching this and somehow enjoying it. Yeah. <laughs> and they're tricked into doing philosophy. Yeah, actually that niche I think is not really filled these days. And I find actually that modern science fiction, when they go back to these lowest common denominators of like violence and combat and so forth, I find that creatively very lazy. And a lot of sci-fis which go far into the future, or even perhaps, let's say, less than a century into the future, they make this mistake of assuming that the future will be sort of simple extrapolations of today, like combat, for example, in the future is always based on very sophisticated guns, which is ridiculous. It won't be guns in the future. It'll be something something completely different, using different aspects of physics to, you know, if you want to just sort of cause mass destruction and you have better control over the physical world than we do, then you wouldn't use that. Yeah, why would you rely on a person's ability to aim something with yeah. their hand? Yeah. yeah. So I, f- I find that modern science fiction is really lacking in imagination. And we're constantly bombarded with dystopias and, oh my God, it'd be so bad if mm-hmm. this is how things are. And so there is a lack of sci-fis presenting a case of imagine how good things could be. Or just even how different. Like, yeah. is it good? Is it bad? Morally just different. Yeah. Like, there's no reason to even believe that our ideas of good or evil will even be relevant exactly. in the future. I totally agree with that. This is something that's prevented me from really getting into a lot of the new sci-fi that's coming out and I just you know stick to my TOS and TNG (laughs) just watch it over and over again and there's something to be said for like big epic space opera type Star Wars style like but that's a completely different thing than a serialized show and like Star Wars is trying to evoke a lot of the whole mythos of like knighthood and Mm. um, like a modern sort of retelling of legends that we already have versus like presenting us with a possible future exactly yeah. yeah it's frustrating to not see this sort of optimistic star trek because i forgot how much i missed it until we went and watched that episode and you like we after we watched it we just sat there for a good like 15 minutes we're mm. just like wow that was so nice wow i feel so good yeah. it's just riding the whole afterglow of that yeah. very optimistic forward-facing ending to um the next generation All right, so we're gathered here today to (laughs) our astrobiological series of discussions on Strange New Worlds. And to lead us into astrobiology, I thought I'd ask you a bridging question, which is what are your favorite alien life forms in Star Trek? So yours is the tardigrade. 
Yours is the tardigrade. Oh, no I questions. thought it was the triple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love them both. Ha, has the tardigrade displaced the triple? No, I, I think triples, you know, overall, because I, I do have a triple. I don't yeah. have a tardigrade yet, so if anybody wants to send me a tardigrade in the mail, maybe it will usurp the triple as my favorite <laughs> Star Trek life. You probably form, have some tardigrades on the, on the grass outside your apartment. I mean, a stuffed <laughs> tardigrade that I can cuddle with at night. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, it gotta be fluffy. exists, yeah. I'm sure it does. I think I've seen, yeah, I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty sure they're out there. Someone on Etsy is making these. Favorite? Um, yeah, I think, uh, so basically two come to mind. They're both, I mean, one, started in Next Generation, I suppose, continued in Voyager. So the Borg, you know, always, as a kid, they terrified me. So whoever came up with that species was very smart because they're scary in several different ways. I mean, maybe it was some kind of model of communism or something that people were trying to say, yeah, look how, look how bad it is. Yeah, people have compared it to America's fears of the rise of Japan. So oh. this sort of like inscrutable conformist mm, culture mm. that isn't necessarily like malevolent, but just exists differently mm. and by existing is a threat to mm. the dominance of the Federation. But mm. I mean, it was happening at the same time as the Cold War mm. was starting to heat up. So maybe just mm. the East in general. Mm. But at the same time, you know, it has a lot of relevance to these ideas of swarm intelligence yeah. and um, optimizing cognitive power, distributed computation and all this kind of thing. And so they were sort of ahead of their time in that sense because complexity theory was in its infancy when they first wrote that. But yeah, also terrifying because they can yeah. just... They just assimilate They can just assimilate everything. you. Because it's one answer to a simple optimization problem. If life's optimization... If life's objective function is just to sort of, you know, I don't know, maximize biomass or maximize entropy production or something, then the Borg probably offer the simplest uh, and most effective solution. Yeah. But I think probably the most interesting species, and probably my favorite, is species 8472. Ah, yeah. Because there they really started going into new territory. And so that's a species and a realm which really opens your mind and sets you wondering. Species of 472 has always been a favorite of mine just because they could defeat the Borg, which gave me nightmares when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> yeah, <I'm>, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I really like the discussion that the doctor on Voyager has about why Species A472 is immune to assimilation. And it was established previously that the Borg assimilate you by injecting nanoprobes into your bloodstream that then co-opt your living cells to produce more nanoprobes, which is really cool. And it's kind of like how viruses work. Mm. And Species A472 had just a super tough immune system that could destroy the nanoprobes before they could okay. take over the cells. And their DNA was just impossible to change by the Borg nanoprobes and there's a lot of really cool microbiology mm. in that discussion that the mm. doctor had on Voyager. Elise, do you have a favorite alien life form from Star Trek? Oh, that's so hard. I'm just going to repeat my praise for Denobulans and all of their forms. <laughs> I love the Denobulans as a species and I would just wish we saw more of them in that I think the most fascinating thing about them is that their sense of morality is different than humanity's, but somehow complementary. And that they have these huge polyamorous marriages, which a lot of like Western ideals about love and faithfulness would completely reject outright as being like amoral or unideal. Um, and they also were able to use eugenics without pulling a Hitler on themselves. So. <laughs> 
I think that's interesting as well, especially as we go into this era where people will be able to CRISPR their babies to be anything they want them to be. I've seen um, it already. I've yeah. seen adverts coming up online. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I yeah. have not seen this. but Gender, I... gender selection wow. with almost 100% accuracy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's going to be hair color, eye color, intelligence, yeah. likelihood of autism, everything. We're going to have to start thinking about what we consider a disease, if people start figuring out what genes make someone more likely to be gay, parents will have to start making decisions about that, like what do we consider a part of human diversity and what do we consider a parent need to edit out, and somehow the Nobulans were able to come up with a solution to this that they were satisfied with as a species, in which the Federation obviously didn't find morally abhorrent enough to exclude them from joining. So I think that's super fascinating, and also I just love Phlox, he's just such a wonderful creature and his love for other creatures I thought was great. I really love the Denobulans. I like the Trill too. I like the Trill as well. One of my favorite things to think about was there was somebody who like fell in love with the Trill symbiont, but the symbiont changed genders and I believe it was Crusher, right? What, didn't didn't she fall for the Trill guy? I'm thinking about I'm thinking about a Deep Space Nine episode here. There's a so Jadzia Dax. Yeah. This may have also happened in TNG because yeah. the show were also in TNG. But the one that sticks out in my mind is where Jadzia Dax is. She has a, a symbiont in her, and the lover who was of the Dax symbiont's previous host, which was male, met Jadzia, and so they're both female, and they express that they have feelings for each other still, and it ended up being one of the first same-sex kisses on, on television. I don't think it was the first, but it was a, it was a pretty pioneering, pioneering yeah. moment. Yeah, the idea of that the trill force you to think about with like what is a single life form, like what are we, what makes you you, what's the essence of a self, I think is a really interesting question to base a species off of. So this is part two of a discussion about the origin of life that Elise and I have had on this podcast. So part one, we watched this episode of The Next Generation and talked about the primordial soup theory and also the hydrothermal vent theory. Elise, do you want to say a few words to just recap what we said about those two theories so that we can jump into the new information that Stuart's going to bring us? Yeah, so I think the takeaway was that these are two sort of opposing theories in a lot of ways and that one is very focused on what life is and the other is focused on what life does and the theories are built up from what you think is more important about life whether or not you think what life is made of the molecules the macromolecules that make up the information storage and the structural components of your cells is what's important or if you think that the way that cells produce energy and store it for themselves is the most important part about life. So the soup theory appeals to people who think that these structural components and the information storage is most important. And the alkaline hydrothermal vent theory appeals to people who think that the way that life takes advantage of energy disequilibria in its environment and its relationship to the kind of earth energy system is what's the most important thing about life. But as we'll learn here, those are not the only ways to think about life getting started, um, and that there's a lot of diversity of thought within this field that isn't reflected in just the two sort of biggest name theories that are out there right now. Yeah, so in some ways, origin of life theories are a little bit like uh, works of art in that everyone's got their own interpretation, because I completely agree that there is a bit of a dichotomy regarding should we seek what life is made of or should we seek what life does. 
And one of the reasons that Origin of Life research has focused more on what life is made of is because that is far, far easier conceptually, because we don't know what life does abstractly, but we do know what it is made of. We can identify, roughly speaking, the family of organic molecules that it's made of. And the soup theory encompasses a lot of different ideas, mm -hmm. and so it's tricky to concretely nail down what it tries to understand and what it is capable of understanding. I mean, there's no one explicitly studying the soup theory. The closest, perhaps, would be in messy chemistries, but you know, the most ardent supporters of that theory, and indeed any others, might argue that, well, it can explain everything, and others would say that it can explain nothing. Yeah, certainly that debate is lacking. So it would be welcome, in my opinion, if at Origin of Life conferences there was a sort of open session where people could freely discuss should we pursue what life is made of and assume that what life does comes naturally once you have what life is made of, or should we pursue what life does abstractly and then map that to what life is made of. So Stuart, I know that you have a very broad view of life that doesn't really quite fit either origin theory. And this broad view of life stems from the principles of fundamental physics that you were trained with and also your own experiences as an astrobiologist. And you often talk about the four pillars of life. What are the four pillars of life to you? So the four pillars, just to lay it out initially, are dissipation, i.e. the resolution of thermodynamic disequilibria. The second pillar of life is exponential growth or autocatalysis so the idea being that when life has access to adequate sources of material and energy you will see an exponential growth of some metric related to its magnitude so for example cells in a petri dish will grow exponentially given ample supply of food molecules and the human species has experienced exponential growth by all kinds of measures population energy consumption etc. And if we, for example, found a planet which was uh, sterile but we know could support life, we would expect to seed it with, let's say, a tiny number of microorganisms and their population would grow exponentially. This actually just happened in Star Trek Discovery. Oh. Um, there was a uh, planetoid. Was a quite interesting exponential growth. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there was a, a habitable planetoid with no life that they seeded with a bunch of mycelia or, or fungi. And within a matter of minutes, the entire world was, oh, right. it was colonized. It was, it Super was exponential. Something. <laughs> well, anyhow. It, it tickled my skepticism. <laughs> but autocatalysis, this so, idea of renewing yourself and creating more of yourself and more things that do the th same things yeah. that you do is yeah. definitely a fundamental aspect of life. Yeah, the idea that your existence promotes your existence or promotes the existence of your uh, successes. The third pillar is uh, homeostasis, because as we know, if you dissipate and you exhibit exponential growth, you may well simply deplete the resources or the uh, fluxes which are fueling your existence. If you dig into the processes of life, the human body, for example, you find that our cells and our, our metabolic activity to a large extent is tied up with keeping things stable. Keep your blood glucose level stable, keep your internal temperature stable, keep your neurological activity stable. When things move away from their happy windows, then often you have serious problems. And the earth as a whole 
needs to be stabilized within certain windows of temperature and uh, distance from the sun and so forth. And so negative feedback and internally generated stability is an essential feature of life. And if you don't have any means of negative feedback, then I think it's probably impossible to stay alive in the long term. Now those three are necessary but not sufficient conditions for life because we can perform experiments where you can observe emergent structures which do all of those three but they're definitely not alive and they will not show any uh, long-term increase in complexity if you just let them run. Could uh, you give us an example of that? Because it's hard to sort of think about abstractly what this all means. Yeah, so um, you can observe exponential growth of chemical compounds in reactor experiments, for example. So um, the foremost reaction is one example, and if you mix together the right thioester species, they will show exponential growth. In my own work, I've experimented with the Gray-Scott reaction diffusion system, where you have self-replicating spot patterns, and so under a steady supply of precursor molecules, those structures will exhibit exponential growth. In terms of homeostasis and negative feedbacks, I've also worked on systems which exhibit thermal homeostasis, so they will respond to thermal perturbations in such a way that their temperature is pushed back to a sort of healthy level. You can find simple negative feedback circuits in all kinds of systems, you know, a spring has a negative feedback circuit. In the organic chemical world, you could easily conjure up a system of reactions which exhibit exponential growth or autocatalysis and some kind of negative feedback and in principle you could sort of wire them together in a in a spatially phase separated way such that such that you get all three of those characteristics operating simultaneously so dissipation autocatalysis and homeostasis are three of the four pillars of life yeah. that are necessary but not sufficient to claim yeah. something is alive. What is that fourth all-important so, pillar? So the crucial fourth key pillar, which is the one that's most difficult to observe in non-living systems, is learning or cognition or information processing. Life has exhibited a, a seemingly open-ended increase in its complexity over evolutionary history, and there is no robust explanation for why this has happened. However, we can see evidence of the ability to learn all through the biosphere from the simplest organisms up to the most complex. So in our case, we of course learn using our senses and our mind, but um, our immune systems also learn about viruses and bacteria. They accumulate information. Uh, there's a vast amount of information stored in our genomes, and through the process of evolution, those genomes are fine-tuned over time such that um, we're better suited to our environment. And so it was a lect previous lecturer of mine, Richard Watson, who influenced my thinking on this. So he has done a lot of research on the analogies between evolution by natural selection and learning. And once I got thinking about the presence of learning in life, I realized that this, I think, is the defining characteristic. If you have the first three pillars plus learning, then I think you at least have the chance to exhibit open-ended increases in complexity because if you're existing in an environment where there is a gradient and so you're dissipating and let's assume that you also have some rudimentary uh, ability to learn 
if you can learn about your environment and how your presence impacts the environment, then probably your chances of persisting or expanding will be enhanced. So, you know, one of the reasons that the human race has done so well is because we understand our environment so well. However, once you understand your environment well and you start exploiting it in a more effective way, your environment is then changed. And so if you want to enhance your survival chances further, you have to update your model of your environment to include your effect on the environment. And so then your model becomes more sophisticated. And again, let's say you expand your population or you become more sophisticated, well then you will impact your environment again because you will be sucking some extra free energy from somewhere. And basically, in a very abstract sense, I think this feedback process of modeling your environment, exploiting it more, but then creating more problems that need solving and coming up with a more sophisticated solution, but then creating more problems, this seems like one route to open-ended complexity because it sort of never ends, assuming, assuming you have access to a sort of large space of information processing and your environment is sufficiently complex. So as you mentioned, human beings have a very advanced way of learning through our minds and our cognition. What was the very first way that living organisms or an autocatalytic system of chemicals and metal catalysts or whatever was at the origin of life, what was the first way to process information, record information, interact with your environment? This is a very good question, very tricky to answer, because you could argue that simple reaction networks working with just mass action kinetics and perhaps a bit of catalysis, because you can, in principle, arbitrarily construct network topologies from them, maybe it's possible to observe a lot of the learning behaviors we see in neural networks also in chemical reaction networks. So one possibility is that certain networks of organic species can already exhibit, for example, associative learning. But the question is which molecules play which roles? Because to learn, you need interactions with your environment. That's pretty easy at the origin of life because you're, you know, you're directly exposed to your environment. And you also need a way to encode the information. So you need a memory of some sort. And there are all kinds of options in that sense. I mean, modern life uses uh, DNA as its memory. But abstractly speaking, memory is just it's just a certain type of energy landscape. You need a, a high energy barrier with a, with a potential well after it, and you need a means of, of pushing your system over that barrier into the potential well such that it won't escape unless you pull it back out. You know, one example being a magnetic tape. So you talked about an energy landscape as a way to store information, but we've been talking a lot in the meetings that we have with Mike Russell, who's this JPL scientist who we all meet with once a week to talk about the origin of life. And he likes to say often, (laughs) rather emphatically, that life is not chemistry. It's this sort of nano engines or nano machines that take advantage of like sloped energy environments or environments that have some kind of directionality to them. So could you tell us what is a nanomachine or a nano engine, and what do they do in life? How do they work? Mm. Why are they important and why is Mike Russell so excited about them? Nano engines, I guess, broadly speaking, are devices which interconvert one type of energy into another. 
or perhaps make use of information sources to create energy gradients. Now, a macroscopic engine usually uses some kind of fuel and creates mechanical work. And so that is a, is a conversion of one type of energy into another. Nano engines in some ways are similar in that they take one gradient of an intensive thermodynamic quantity, like for example ATP concentration, and convert it into another form of energy like um, movement or redox gradients, proton gradients, etc. What is unique about nano engines is that they move even in equilibrium. So microscopic engines in an equilibrium scenario, for example, where they're not being supplied with fuel, will do nothing. They are completely motionless. Whereas nano engines, because of Brownian motion, so at the nano length scale, 10 to the minus 9 meters, roughly speaking, assuming you're at a reasonable temperature, let's say where water is a liquid, Brownian motion is, um, is a highly relevant force. Brownian motion being the random kicks from water molecules primarily. So if you are a nanoscale molecule in that environment, you are constantly getting buffeted around by what has been called the molecular storm. So it's a lot like being in a hailstorm. But rather, the hail doesn't have one direction like it does in a normal hailstorm. It's coming at you from random directions with a large spread of velocities. So you're constantly being buffeted in one direction or another. Now, if we were to build a machine to work in that kind of environment, our response might be, well, we need to make it out of tough steel to resist all these perturbations. It needs to be strong. And indeed, you know, if you live in a place with hailstorms, you'd have to build a tough roof so that it doesn't get perturbed by the hailstorm. And so an engineer might think, right, I need to design a molecule which can work in this environment. It's going to get buffeted by Brownian motion. So it's going to have to be very, very strong and rigid. But you imagine how difficult it would be to build a molecule like that, to have strong enough bonds that it was not affected by Brownian motion would be extremely difficult. So of course, life chose a different path to design those molecules or those machines to actually take advantage of Brownian motion. Now taking advantage of Brownian motion sounds crazy because Brownian motion is by definition statistically uncorrelated. So every kick you get from Brownian motion has nothing to do with the next kick. And so as the second law of thermodynamics tells us, you cannot extract energy from this random source. And so the amazing trick that life came up with is that in fact what it does is it uses those random kicks, but only when they're useful. It basically was able to construct molecules which do get bombarded by these Brownian kicks, but let's say it's a molecule that wants to walk forwards along a track. And so it's gonna receive kicks both in the forward direction and the back direction. What is clever about these molecules is that their energy landscapes are constructed in such a way that if they receive a kick that pushes them forward, they very quickly make a transition to another state and that other state is one where moving backwards becomes extremely unlikely. So at one moment they're equally likely to get pushed backwards or forwards but in the case that they get pushed forwards they very quickly transition into a different state and if they're pushed backwards they do nothing. So they work like ratchets. Now of course if you want to lock in those useful fluctuations 
you have to make use of some kind of energy source. It does take energy to do that or it takes information to do that. And so that's where the engine concept comes in because, for example, these molecular walkers, they are hydrolyzing ATP molecules, basically taking advantage of the fact that ATP has been driven out of equilibrium by some other process to lock in those useful fluctuations. That's amazing. You know, the more I learn about how life actually works, the, the, the more my mind is blown by biology. So Stuart, what do you think the relevance of nano engines is for the emergence of life? If we take away the nano engines from life, modern life, there is no life. They're essential. Essential for energy storage, energy transduction, and for constructing uh, large molecules from smaller ones. And in a more abstract sense, engines are interesting because they use one gradient to create another. And if your system is dissipating one gradient or several gradients but creating others at the same time, then it will probably get more complex over time. For me, if you have an origin of life scenario like hydrothermal vents or geothermal pools, and for some reason you have a process which is synthesizing perhaps a very poor but nonetheless a free energy converting molecular device, then definitely that system will show some kind of interesting behavior, phase separation or pattern formation and perhaps something that we associate with life. And if you want to uh, encode information, then nano engines are extremely useful because you need to drive unlikely processes using likely processes, and that's exactly what nano engines do. Very cool. I think that's all we have time for today. We were also going to talk about the concept of messy chemistry and the way that people are studying possibly emergence of life relevant soups today. Um, but we will just have to return to that <laughs> at a different time and bring you back onto the podcast to talk about messy chemistry. Um, but thanks for joining us, Stuart. Yeah, no problem. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. That concludes episode 33 of Strange New Worlds. I hope you learned something new about the origin and nature of life from our conversation with Dr. Stuart Bartlett. Unfortunately, we all had to run to our next meeting and didn't get the chance to chat about the idea of messy chemistries, a modern take on how complex chemical reaction networks might give rise to lifelike features. But we can save that conversation for a later date. When you get right down to it, life works in incredible, sometimes counterintuitive ways. We are just beginning to understand the role of memory and learning at the emergence of life, and the way molecular machines drive our living systems today. The next time you look at yourself in the mirror, I hope you marvel at how preposterously amazing you are. You are the product of billions of years of evolution, the part of the story of life that can begin to understand where it came from. And with that thought, I'll bid you farewell for now. Until next time, see you out there. Stuart, tell me about mountain biking. Um... It's the path to enlightenment. The Buddha and various other 
people in India hundreds of years ago figured out a lot of um, insights into finding inner peace and so forth. And now we often associate inner peace with spending time in nature and calming our minds down. And um, there has now been a bit of research done on how people achieve, they call it a state of flow. So some people meditate by removing everything, removing activity, removing sound, removing everything. But it's now becoming quite well understood that some people achieve it by not removing everything, but just concentrating really hard on one activity, like professional athletes, writers, whatever the act. It can be any activity. Mountain biking is one route to um, inner harmony because you have you immerse yourself in the natural environment, which gives you a sense of peace. But at the same time, you place yourself in quite a lot of danger. And you have this challenge that's similar to making a piece of artwork or something in that you have to, um, the trail is, is, is messy and rough and you have to make something beautiful out of it. Once you've been doing it for a few years, you have a very good sense of whether you're riding well or badly. And, and so it's a bit like golf, you know, after a while, you know that you can perform physically well, but whether you perform physically well or physically badly is purely down to your state of mind. So it becomes a battle. Well, maybe a battle is a bad way to put it. Becomes a game between yourself and your mind. I feel like I've reached enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs>